KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hello, Seamus. Hey, Taylor. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Bike Talk. It's still Bike Month. We gotta love May. Yeah, I can't believe it's still going on. There's so much <laughs> happening. We had Detroit. There's still something going on every day in Detroit. And last week was the 18th, which is Bike to Work Day, pretty much nationally. And that's always a good day. People are out on the street giving out things to cyclists who are riding to their jobs or home from their jobs. Showing everybody that it can be done. Everybody works from home now anyway, though. (laughs) It's easy to bike to work now. Right. Stationary bike then. Pelotons to work. Yeah. So Cyclovia was Sunday. We talked about it last week and then you had it. Yeah, it was a Cicla Mini. So it was the first sort of mini Cyclovia that was just, I think, sort of contained in, in almost just a single neighborhood in the city. Where? In Watts. Watts. So Cyclovia is an open streets event in Los Angeles, California. Yes. I also rode down to it. I rode right by the east side riders. They had several tents set up and they had a lot of people there. It was cool. You talked to John Jones the third. Sure did. He's done bike talk interviews going back a decade. Yeah. I, it was cool to hear hear his um passion about his organization and the programs they run. He recorded it. Sure did. Here it is. My name is John Jones. I'm the president and co-founder of Eastside Riders Bike Club. How are you enjoying the Cicla Mini? Yeah, the first Cicla Mini, and we're really enjoying it because it's bringing fun, excitement, music, dance, partying to the streets of Watts. What is Eastside Riders Bike Club? Eastside Riders is a nonprofit organization that brings bicycle safety and education to all over LA and the state of California. But we're primarily here listening to the needs and concerns of our community and not only trying to get them involved in cycling, but to understand their needs, period, through the community. So if it's food, we're helping with food. If it's shoes, socks, clothes, we're helping with that. But our primary focus is to bring cycling and better cycling to our community. How can people participate or get involved? Sign up on our um, website, www.esrbc.org, or you can visit us at any given time on our Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, at Eastside Riders. When you're helping people with food and various things, how do you grow your membership? How do you get in touch with those people? How do they reach out to you? So a lot of them just go through our um, our Instagram. We have a nice um, following on our Instagram, and we have a nice base of people who reach out and spread the word. So those spider veins are pretty big um, when you're talking about Eastside Riders and the, and the reach that we have with our community members. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for keeping Bike Talk going. Eastside Riders. I like the Ciclovia because it really shows you what your neighborhood could be like if it wasn't overrun by cars 24-7. You know, you yeah. get to see what the buildings are like and the storefronts and and the people come out. It, it just changes everything. I like it because it shows you how much people want to use space differently. I think the best part about Cyclovia is that it takes cars out of the space for the right. In some cities, powers that be are clawing back some of the positive changes that we've made in the last couple of years. We're starting to get in some bike lanes. We're starting to get in some bus lanes and some infrastructure. And, you know, change takes time. There's a learning curve to it. And some people are pulling the plug on these positive changes before they have a time to settle in. Culver City is going to 
maim the great bike lanes that they've implemented over the last year or two. It's called Move Culver City? Yeah. yeah. Re- remove Culver City is what they should uh, call it. In Vancouver, this conservative party has swept city council there. It's called ABC for a better city. It's one of those groups that pretends that they care about like infrastructure. Fix the and city they, in Los Angeles. And then there's Keep Toronto Moving in Toronto. A better city is ripping out a protected bike lane and they're saying they're doing it to make a multi, multi-million dollar lane that will provide an extra lane for cars. It seems to people that when it comes time to pay for the super expensive lane, they won't have the money. And then they're going to have their two lanes of traffic back. I guess there's a silver lining. Critical mass is back. Yeah. All right. And here's this interview with Lucy Maloney and also Rob Zomber, who was going to be Rob Zombie, but it was taken because he has a zombie oh. ride. He has a Halloween zombie ride. Anyway, here they are. Lucy Maloney and Rob Zomber of Vancouver. Lucy, you've been working with bike advocate activist group Love the Lane. Is that your primary well, affiliate? it's actually a new organisation that sprung up um, since the last municipal election in October last year as a reaction to the ABC or A Better City Party's supermajority, the first decision of which was to rip out the bike lane in Stanley Park, which is actually underway. They started taking out the concrete gravity barriers I think there's going to be uh, quite a lot of action this weekend by a critical mass ride taking place weekly in Stanley Park that happens at one o'clock every Sunday. It's uh, it's actually quite cynical what the city council has done because not only have they planned to rip out and now are actually physically ripping out this bike lane, but they're using the permanent cycling infrastructure budget to do it. So this is, you know, they're using money that's allocated to build safe infrastructure to rip out safe cycling infrastructure. So this is uh, this has angered a lot a lot of people. You know, this is uh, you know, your tax dollars hard at work making cycling less safe in the city. I think this has been uh, one of the main drivers of a resurgence in critical mass. I've been working on on the critical mass rides uh, on trying to get them organized and you know fighting for for more. Uh, infrastructure for, for the last few years. I've been actively promoting the ride and we had our biggest ride yet last month. Uh, we probably had, you know, close to 200 people come out. They actually had a, a fairly pro-bike platform. We were really taken by surprise after the election when the announcement came out the day after the election that they were going to rip the Stanley Park bike lane out. And as a result, you have a resurgence of critical mass. When I moved here, uh, critical mass would be thousands of riders uh, every month. And we elected a mayor who was a cyclist. We elected Mayor Gregor Robertson. He revolutionized cycling. This was in the lead up to the Olympics. We got amazing protected infrastructure put in during his tenure. A lot of the advocates just felt we won the war. We won the war on on cars and you know there was safe infrastructure put in. And this was the way we were going and we were avant-garde. We were starting to lead the country. And now we're, we're going the opposite direction, you know, where uh, Montreal is putting in their express bike lanes. Now they're going to double their cycling infrastructure under their mayor, Valerie Plant. You know, we are falling very far behind. There's this uh, make Vancouver great again movement where, you know, these guys want to go back to some sort of a 1950s Vancouver, you know, or something. I don't know. I don't know what they're it, the, it really uh... is disturbing. 
a lot of the ABC elected officials, they're cycle commuters and they consider themselves to be pro-cycling, but they're failing to make decisions that demonstrate that so far. All I can do is after each each decision that knocks me over is pick myself up and dust myself off. The point of the resurgence of critical mass, all these rides, people are expressing their huge frustration with the decisions that are being made using different methods to try and affect the outcomes and change the view the elected officials have about the implementation of good public policy. I think critical mass is kind of an expression of exactly what you're experiencing there in Vancouver. It's frustration. It's, exactly. it's a party and it's it's about freedom. But Yeah, and I think that's a really important thing for people that have put so much time and effort into advocating for these decisions to be made. They need an outlet. And it's also a way of creating community because we all need to be cheered up and motivated and and consoled when these super disappointing things happen, it always comes down to a decision between the convenience of motorists and the literal life and death safety of vulnerable road users. And that's the thing with Stanley Park that's very frustrating. We're sacrificing year-round safe cycling for the convenience of motorists at peak times because Motorists aren't inconvenienced any other time except for these very small windows on sunny weekends and public holidays when there is traffic congestion, right? But a cyclist can be killed by uh, a motorist who's looking at their phone or driving too fast or not paying attention any time of the year around the park or simply intimidated. People write off cyclists as being, you know, selfish and entitled, but it's born of wanting people to not have to have courage to get out and cycle for transport or cycle for pleasure. Do you want to describe one of the critical masses? So it was just the alignment of good weather, an unfortunate and disappointing council decision during that that week that really motivated a big, massive cyclist to come out. And there was a real carnival atmosphere. I talked to a whole lot of people I hadn't seen for a while and We all felt really safe and it was very festive, people ringing their bells and calling out to passers-by and people waiting at bus stops and pedestrians and a lot of drivers seemed super supportive. It's one of these things that makes the city feel alive and really adds to the atmosphere, I think. You know, just people buzzing around in cars and nothing happening is really boring, but getting people out on bikes is something that really makes people feel alive. You know, we meet up at the Vancouver Art Gallery last Friday of the month much like uh, the rest of the world. We run through a little bit of a safety briefing, make sure everybody knows how to stay safe. And then off we go. Whoever's at the front of the pack decides where the mass is going. We basically act like one big motor vehicle, human-powered motor vehicle. We're, We're a big bus. And like if the light changes while the mass is going, we all continue on through the traffic lights and then stay as one group until every last rider uh, is through safely. It's a hell of a good time. It really uh, excites pedestrians that are seeing us. You know, people cheer and wave and, you know, we're a big cacophony of bells and ghetto blasters. And it, it's, it really is a celebration and a protest. I really uh, am excited to see this movement grow. We really want to get some attention of, of those people at City Hall because um, I, I think they're very out of touch with what needs to be going on. 
as for now, uh, they're ripping out the bike lane in Stanley Park to make two lanes for cars because cars need two lanes in uh, Vancouver's iconic Stanley Park. Thank you, Lucy and Rob, for fighting to uh, keep bike culture alive. I think we're going to have a great ride this month. You know, Critical Mass started in San Francisco in the early 90s, and I can remember it doing it in New York. And I've done it a few times in Los Angeles. And it's usually on the last Friday of the month. And you can find Critical Mass rides wherever you live. You type in Critical Mass and it'll come up. Um, Usually the route is not known in advance. It's just you show up and you ride with a big group of people on surface streets around your city. And it's a great way to ride safely because there's safety in numbers. But to take back some of the streets. Listener email. We got an email. We did. We got an email. Not an angry email. An email that sort of disagrees with us philosophically, though. Part of the email was supportive. It said we need to have KPFK in Los Angeles announce when Bike Talk is on more. But it expressed something that you hear too often. The title is Another Thing Bicyclists Do. Right? (laughs) They ride on sidewalks and use crosswalks. Many people who ride bicycles on public streets do many things which are dangerous to them and drivers of cars and pedestrians, such as crossing intersections without stopping for red lights or stop signs, ride in opposite direction than traffic, abruptly veer from side of street into traffic lanes, wear dark clothes so they're not visible at night, and many more. Since at this time, not every city wants to make separate lanes for bikes, The topic of safe riding should get publicity and be thoroughly discussed with people who ride bicycles to protect them and others. From Marco, a listener. I felt like she was attacking me specifically because I do all of those things. She's right, though. Cyclists do break laws sometimes. Unfortunately, drivers do, too. And the consequences when a driver runs a stop sign or a stoplight are much more catastrophic than when a human on a 30-pound bicycle does. But I think she makes a good point. Well. What should be taught is in driving tests at the DMV, how to drive with cyclists, how to give them space. I really don't think that cyclists are any sort of great danger to anyone at all. On the sidewalk, I agree with you. Red lights, weaving in and out of traffic, none of that rises to an alarm level. I think that it's, it's the cars. It's such a human thing to see the not you breaking the rules. Some might say you should have a helmet. Some might say you should have high visibility clothes and all the other ways of being safe. But the statistics for people killed by cars, we all mention all the time. It's about 40,000 a year killed by cars, leading cause of death in children. And the statistics for people killed by bikes, they don't have them. Yeah, where's that? Even <laughs> well, I, well, you guys, I I have a personal story about that. When I was a child, my mother taught at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, and I was with her one night, my brother and I, at her office picking up her papers, and she held us back, and she stepped into the road be, before we crossed at a crosswalk, and a bicycle hit her and knocked her down and knocked her out, and it was the first time I went in an ambulance to the hospital. Luckily, she was fine. And had it been a car, she would have been killed. But bicycles can be dangerous. And in in San Francisco, there was a story about a a guy on a bike um, going through a red light and he hit a pedestrian in a crosswalk and killed him. And so 
I do think there is a conversation to be had about safe, responsible riding. To go one step further, I think that's why we need the Idaho Stop Law, a law that is reasonable for cyclists about how they handle stop signs and stop lights. And they deal with it by following the right of way. And not all cyclists do follow the right of way, not the stop sign, but the right of way. You treat the stop sign as a yield. But if there's a car there first, you slow down. You don't have to stop your bike, but you slow down and let that car go because he or she has the right of way. You don't make them stop while you blow through the stop sign. I pay attention very much to lights and traffic laws, but I think my primary concern is what are these drivers doing? I'm hyper-conscious of eye contact with drivers. Yeah, uh, You know, I'll take a lane and then I'll sort of stare them down, looking behind me. The bulk of work that needs to be done is on how drivers interact with cyclists. Anytime I see something like this, oh, it's the cyclists need to do this or that. It's like, we're doing a lot for the community just by riding, just by taking our bike instead of our car. Right. Uh, you know, the cars are dangerous, taking short trips, polluting the air. The changes need to happen with the drivers. Well, one of the great things about a bicycle is you can be a car in one second, and then you can be a pedestrian in the next second when the road is not safe. I ride on the sidewalk all the time when the road is not safe to ride in. I do slow down when there are people on the sidewalk, and I try to give deference to them, but mm. uh, I ride in a way that is safest for me. Yeah. If people on bikes are doing something, whatever it is, in significant numbers, you need to understand why that's happening. Like, why are people having to ride on the sidewalk? And you need to fix it. Right. Yeah. And it's not the same with cars, because right. cars are the problem. Yeah. Yesterday, I rode up from Watts up to LA, and there's parts where you have to ride on the sidewalk. There's nothing there, and the cars are going so fast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really wild. It's, it's, it's crazy out there. Well, Margo, thank you for the letter, because it really did create a good conversation. We have some really informative stuff coming up here. This is an interview with uh, the person at Emissions Analytics, Nick Molden, whose company did the uh, research showing tire particles pollute more than tailpipes. Dave Campbell, the former advocacy director of Bike East Bay, said that this just turned everything upside down for him because he'd been told for decades by engineers that you can't do anything to slow down cars because it would increase emissions. And we have a bike advocate, Dr. Grace Peng, on this interview too. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, that is interesting. The idea that the tires, the tread causes more pollution than the tailpipes. Didn't used to be the case. Personally, I'm going to have to look into this. It's hard for me to believe. All right. Well, listen to this and you can make up your mind. Dave Campbell is the former advocacy director of Bike East Bay in the Bay Area, now a bike planner with the city of Charlotte, North Carolina. Nick Molden is the CEO of Emissions Analytics, the company behind the research showing tire particles cause worse pollution than car exhaust. And this study done by Emissions Analytics was cited in a Guardian article, and the article was tweeted by Dave Campbell, who said, if the science about tire pollution is accurate, there is an entire profession that owes us an apology. So hi to Dave, Nick, and Dr. Grace Peng, who's included here as a bike advocate and scientist to help provide context. 
Uh, Grace, do you want to say something about where you're coming from? Yes, I am a, the Natural Resources Director for League of Women Voters of Los Angeles County. And one of the th- things that is really missing in the bike advocacy um, space is the voices of women and mothers who are trying to teach our children how to navigate the city. Because in urbanism, people forget that uh, the city is actually a workplace for women, even if we don't work outside the home, because we are the chauffeurs that make sure that our children learn how to navigate. And also we get we get them from place to place that they need to be, as well as we keep all the balls in the air. And so in with that in mind, that's why the League of Women Voters is so interested in lowering VMT, um, making children more independent and yes. a clean environment. VMT, vehicle miles travel. Vehicle mile, car miles travel. Which is a measurement which we are moving towards or? Oh. We want to reduce the number of car miles traveled. Right. So if I... Um, drive a trip. If I drive my kid to school and back, that is like two VMT if the school's a mile away. And But if I walk them over or I bike them over, that would be zero VMT. Many bike projects were stalled on the basis that when cars are moving slower, they're polluting, right? Yeah. As the former advocacy director with Bike East Bay, I'm not here to speak on behalf of Bike East Bay but I am their former advocacy director. So for 20, 25 years, you know, I dealt with this issue. For many years, CEQA was used and still is used, although now it's used with vehicle miles traveled, to look at pollution and what pollution was caused by cars going too slow, what the average person would understand to be congestion. If we slow cars down, it gets congested and those cars pollute more. And so if you're going to repurpose a travel lane on a street for a bike lane and put the existing traffic into one travel lane where they had two before, for example, you're going to potentially cause congestion. That's going to slow cars down and that's going to pollute more. And under CEQA, you need to study that. And not only do you need to make that study, you need to look 30 years into the future and to see all the additional car traffic that we expect with population growth. And so we had lots of bike projects where cities would do this analysis and say, you know, unfortunately, it looks like we're going to be causing congestion with this project 30 years in the future, even if not, you know, in five years, in 30 years. And uh, if we cause too much congestion, that's an impact under CEQA. The California Environmental Quality Act, which Maybe I'm not an expert in defining, but it says if you're going to do a project, if you're going to make a major change out there somewhere in California, you have to study the environmental impacts of it. You have to disclose those impacts to the public. And if you can mitigate those impacts, you need to do it. And so this was the first time I heard of this sort of counter environmental argument that actually cars going faster, there's there's evidence and science that is showing that that's causing more pollution. And if you go back in my Twitter feed a couple of years, you'll find my tweet at that point. I was like, wow, where did that come from? That is counter to every project we have been told about. Talking about speed is the not the right way of thinking about this problem. Because the key pollutants are generated under acceleration. And when I say main pollutants, this covers 
carbon monoxide, indeed, from petrol, from gasoline vehicles, but crucially, carbon dioxide from a climate change point of view, and tyre particles as well. So all of these, to one extent or another, are generated during acceleration. The speed is a secondary matter. So it is, it is really almost nonsensical to say pollution is greater at higher speed than lower speed or vice versa. What you need to is what I would call dynamic. How dynamic is the traffic? So if you have, let's say, average speed of traffic of 25 miles an hour, and one of those is totally smooth, everyone going at steady 25 miles an hour, your pollutant emissions will be pretty low. If, on the other hand, you're zigzagging between naught and 50, which averages out to 25, but you're zigzagging up and down, then the pollutant emissions will be much higher, much, much higher. So from a traffic engineering point of view, if you change the layout of the roads in such a way as it leads vehicles to stop and start a lot more, that can be really bad. And so, but that can be misinterpreted as saying faster is better, which would be a wrong way of characterizing it. It's basically smoother is better. And then you get to the details then of how you engineer the roads. If you put in bike lanes that actually makes the traffic flow smoother of cars, that can actually be net benefit for everyone. But if you're putting in lots more obstacles, if you're changing the phasing of traffic lights in such a way as there's lots more stopping and starting, that can be a really bad thing. So really, that's the way to think about it, not not speed. There is another dimension to think about in the context of vehicle miles traveled, which is that if by re-engineering the road space makes it essentially journeys slower and more hasslesome for drivers, what tends to happen is people will make fewer trips or they will switch to public transport. And that can be really beneficial. Certainly if people make fewer trips, that's beneficial for the environment. And if they switch to walking or cycling, that's also beneficial. So if, if you, in a sense, make it more annoying to drive, that can be a benefit as well. And you can think about it the other way around, too. You know, there's always the argument when it comes to building new roads. You know, People say, ah, oh, there's terrible congestion. We need to build more roads or we need to put another lane on the 405. The problem with that is that that makes driving easier and quicker. So it just sucks in more traffic. People make more journeys, travel further, they switch away from active travel, induced demand. So you can think of putting bike lanes in as the opposite of building more lanes on. So you're making it more costly to drive and so fewer people drive. And that effectively can help mitigate the extra congestion. It's all about dynamics. And so if you do a good engineering intervention, you can make it better in all respects, better for cyclists, better for cars, better for the environment. Try and smooth out the flow. 
And let me give you an example from London. What London is introduced on a lot of the freeways coming into London, something called smart motorways. So it has dynamic speed restrictions. So when the traffic starts getting heavy, it will lower the speed limit from 70 miles an hour to 50 or even 40. That has the effect of stopping these waves of congestion. So it slows everyone down, but smooths it out. So you'll find yourself gliding into London at, say, 40 miles an hour, but smoothly, rather than before, 70 down to zero, up to 70 again, up and down. And that smooth 40 is much, much lower emissions than the dynamic 0 to 70. So, so and, and, and London, it, it's working relatively successfully. And the initial reaction of motorists is horror that you will restrict people's speed. But the reality of it is you often get to your destination in about the same amount of time because you haven't had that ridiculous zigzagging up and down from high to low speed. I want Nick to explain how he's able to figure out under real world driving conditions, just how environmentally harmful each of the actions that a driver takes are. We actually put instrumentation on the vehicle so we can actually drive it around on the public highway in these heavily congested areas and our equipment measures in second by second what's coming out of the tailpipe. It is true that the large proportion of the total emissions of a vehicle from a trip are during the acceleration phases. Um, it's also very true, Grace, that across the, the car park on, of all cars on the road, it's a relatively small proportion of vehicles that are responsible for the majority of the emissions. And, 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 and that is why you know, interventions to either get those vehicles off the road or to you know, force people to fix them through the smog checks or whatever it is, that, that targeted intervention is a much more efficient way of dealing with the problem than trying to force everyone to upgrade to electric vehicles. And we're a really interesting juncture at the moment um, because if, if everyone were to switch instantaneously to electric vehicles, the common understanding would be that that would suddenly solve all our environmental problems at one stroke. By our research, because of the increased weight of electric vehicles, about you know a big electric vehicle might be a thousand pounds heavier than a typical internal combustion engine, that'll add about a quarter to the tire wear emissions, which will add to air pollution, but also marine pollution. Electric vehicles are not a free pass when it comes to the environment. Because electric vehicle tires have a bigger surface area, they have a higher rate of VOC off-gassing and the rate of off-gassing from tires is about 100 times greater than the VOCs from the tailpipe of a gasoline vehicle. It's increasingly the case that the tailpipe is not the major source of pollution anymore. The best guide to the environmental impact of a vehicle is its size and weight. And that and is why I ride an e-bike for my local trips. And Dave uh, has a question. My question is to you, you're the scientist here. Tell us what we don't know. And so like now you could say, well, we think smoothing it out is going to do it. But what we really need to do is learn this, 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 and this going forward. 
in order to know that that's going to be the solution to solve this problem, which we weren't hearing from previous generations. Does that make sense? Right. Absolutely. And what, what we don't know is very important. And, and, and today is a very good illustration because most people still fixate on the tailpipe when they think of vehicle pollution. And until a few years ago, no one was really researching tyre pollution. In 2020, no one was really thinking about that. So we didn't know anything about tyre pollution. Now we've started looking at it. We know a whole bunch about it and realise it's quite bad. So always questioning what other sources might there be for the pollution we are observing. Don't just lazily ascribe it to what the sort of where we think it comes from. So I, I would agree on that. But to, were the scientists, quote, wrong in the 70s and correct now or vice versa? Or what? Cars before all these after treatment systems, they were absolutely gushing pollution as they drove. And so in a very crude sense, the quicker you could get them in and out of the city, the better. You know, the shorter the time they were on the road, the better, because whatever they were doing, whether they were going fast, slow, backwards, round in circles, didn't matter. They were gushing pollution. Cars and they were, and that's one reason why cancer rates were so high, because gasoline, you could smell the volatile organic compounds from the gasoline, the incompletely combusted um, gasoline was just gushing out of these tailpipes. And it was causing like cancer alleys along the roads. And we fixed mm -hmm. that. Exactly, exactly right. So that, that, was, that characterizes it in the 70s. More recently, internal combustion engines with all the after-treatment system, when you're driving it in a steady state fashion, the pollution coming out is almost zero because the after-treatment systems are working really well. But when you do something dynamic, that's when you get most of it. So before, it was about speed of, speed of getting through the city, completing your journey. It was the time the car was switched on was your problem. More recently, it was the time spent accelerating, which was the problem. So that's the reason why the advice at the time was probably good advice, but it was not relevant advice to the millennium, post-millennium. And in the 1970s, we instituted a fifth nationwide 55 mile per hour speed limit. 55 saves lives was how we sold it politically, but it was really because the fuel economy. The optimal speed for fuel consumption is probably around 45, 50 miles an hour, something like that. Depends slightly on the vehicle in it. But uh, so 55 was actually not from a fuel consumption point of view, was not a stupid number. Our thing is one, reduce cars like have me, people like me that enjoy riding a bike, ride an e-bike around town instead of driving. And then two, when we do drive, make sure that we drive in the uh, smallest, car, lightest car that does the trick and we drive it smoothly. Those are your recommendations, right? Yes, and that goes exactly counter to the trend of the moment, which is for bigger, heavier vehicles. Where we can, and particularly for local journeys, small, light, light touch, vehicles is is the way to go and obviously a, a bike is a, is a is an extreme example of that um and, and the trend is in the wrong direction at the moment we should think of the environmental impact in a much more holistic way you want you know things which are the, the lightest duty the lightest weight the smallest tires the quietest you can going around in a smooth driving 
So light vehicles going around smoothly is ideally what you want. Then cars can cohabit much better with bikes and, and, and walking and other, other modes of transport. We need to bring destinations and people closer together because the end goal is not to move vehicles, it's to move people. So the goal I think we've always had of 20 to 25 sounds even more scientifically sustainable after this conversation. So thanks, Dick. So the takeaway from this is that you need to keep traffic going smoothly, but you need lighter vehicles because heavier vehicles cause more tire pollution yeah. of all kinds. But we also need that smooth speed to be low enough so that people don't get killed quite as much. We know a good way to smooth out the traffic flow is to sometimes take away the third lane of auto traffic and add a bike lane there. And that smooths out the flow of the cars and gives cyclists a safe space to get to their destination. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting when he said that electric cars are not the answer. They're heavier, their tires are bigger, and they create more tire pollution. He made an interesting point about in the 70s and 80s, cars were just dumping pollution just by starting the car. But that's changed now because of catalytic converters and after ignition processes in modern cars that just don't pollute that much out of the tailpipe. I have a hard time with the concept that the tires pollute more than the exhaust. I'm sure that it's true, um, maybe especially because of vehicle emission reduction. Weight and size also. We've made it so that they pollute less. I, I need to learn more about this. I think the real takeaway is what Grace says in the interview is, is that she says, you know, when you have a short errand, do it on an e-bike, do it on a bicycle. You don't need to get in a 4,000 pound car to drive to Trader Joe's to get a gallon of milk. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. And it's a waste of space. The multimodality issue is is what needs to be addressed. I mean, bikes aren't going to be an answer for, for everybody. We need proper circulator buses in neighborhoods and walkability. We need to see significant change. Now, going strong with Bike Month from Northampton, I went to a bike breakfast and talked to some advocates. Our mayor, Ciara, has come from another event today, but I really appreciate her coming through. GL is a great advocate of both pedestrian and bicycle activity in our city. Happy bike commute day and um, bike commute week. So, bike commute day, May 17th today, um, part of Bay State Bike Month. Whereas bicycling contributes to the health and fitness of residents, provides mobility, does not add to noise or air pollution, and provides an inexpensive and convenient way to commute. And whereas bicyclists have the same rights and duties as drivers of other vehicles, including the right to use city streets. And whereas bicyclists must follow the traffic laws as other vehicles, both for their own safety and for the safety of others. And whereas there is so much to celebrate in Northampton bicycling, bicycling including the launch and almost immediate success of Valley Bike, the electric pedal assist bike share system, and the city's first cycle track along Pleasant Street. And whereas bicycles are used in a variety of occupations, such as by members of Northampton's police department and by the people who haul trash and recycling from our downtown. And now, therefore I, Gina Lee do hereby proclaim May 17th, 2023 to be Bike Commute Day in the city of Northampton and encourage all citizens who are able to bicycle to, bicycle to work or school and to take cognizance of bicyclists in their travels 
I urge citizens to consider bicycling as an efficient, planet-friendly, and enjoyable mode of transportation and recreation, in witness whereof I have set my hand and imprinted the seal of the city of Northampton on the 17th day of May, 2023, Mayor Jean Louis Happy Bike Commute Day, everybody. I'm with James okay. Lowenthal, founder of the Bike Breakfast in Northampton. Hi, James. Hi, Nick. Nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. So how long has this been going on? We started it, uh, Catherine Rette and I, in 1999, I believe, was the first year. Holy cow. So that's 24 years? That's about right. Yeah. I had moved here recently from Santa Cruz, California, where there was a very active bike community, bike advocacy community. And they did a bike breakfast that was big, big, big. And I got involved, and, and I, so that's where I learned the ropes, and I grafted that onto here. I'm happy to say that when I look around now, I see a lot of bike culture here in Northampton. It's really, it's grown up a, a huge amount in the 25 years. There's the racing culture with Northampton Cycling Club. Uh, we're standing right here in the uh, next to Speed and Sprocket Cycle Works, a van devoted to mobile bike repair. Um, there are bike racks, there are bike lanes, there are bike um, paths. Uh, there really is a bike culture here that, that wasn't there. I still think there's a lot of room for improvement. That's really gonna happen when the, the, uh, the bike trails are finished to Boston and New Haven, and it's uh, just gonna be on the spot. We're the nexus of those trails, and we know from experience that when you build a network of trails like that, you get an influx of tourists, and the bike culture really grows big. And I think that'll happen here too. We all know we're in a climate crisis. We all know, we bicyclists, we know uh, cycling has to be part of the solution, uh, that we can't just keep building for cars, even electric cars. And uh, bicyclists are the most efficient mode of transportation ever designed. Okay, so this is Jess Slavin, communications coordinator of MassBike, Massachusetts Bike Coalition. How are you doing? I'm doing great. We just had such a beautiful bike breakfast here in Northampton. It's a beautiful day outside. Um, I'm really loving it. There were a lot of active advocates here, which is great to see. Northampton has a really thriving um, community of folks who care about bicycling. And it's um, really was awesome to be able to chat with everyone. So bike month, Bay State Bike Month, very busy for you, Jess, as communications coordinator of Mass Bike. Yeah, it's been a really busy month, and I've actually been doing quite a bit of uh, traveling around to go to different events. I was just at the South Coast Bikeway Alliance's 10th Annual Bike Summit in New Bedford and got to give a presentation about the new vulnerable road users laws down there. And yeah, just super grateful that Massachusetts was full of all of these people who are doing so much work in their communities to make it better for everyone to bike. You talked a bit to the people here about the vulnerable... The vulnerable road users laws and it's aimed at ending um, fatal crashes on our roadways and the bill included a couple of different um, things that will help us move kind of towards that goal and the bill defined vulnerable road users which is a big step for us because now we'll be able to use that definition to expand protections for this class of uh, folks and just yeah make it safer out there uh, so that's that's the big news legislatively yeah, that's like our biggest thing legislatively right now. Um, so that law passed. All of this is not in effect. Oh, something else that's really, really exciting that was in the law was uh, regarding 
bicyclists and pedestrian crash reporting. Before, it was sometimes hard to tell if a crash involved a bicyclist or a pedestrian, or if it was a bicyclist or a pedestrian. Um, it would get reported in many different ways, so sometimes hard to just like find that data. And now there's going to be a public crash portal for bicyclists and pedestrian crashes that you'll be able to see the aggregate data um, anonymized for crashes. It's going to be super important because then you're going to be able to see um, the areas where there are high crash rates. Data can tell very compelling stories and really can be a crucial tool to making change. Jacob Seidel. Hey, how's it going, Nick? Good to see you. Good. All bodies on bikes? Yeah, that's what we're, well, we're here for the Northampton, Friends of Northampton Trails Community Bike Breakfast, but I'm representing All Bodies on Bikes, the Western Mass chapter. Great. And you got a pride ride coming up. That's right. On June 4th at 11 a.m., we're meeting at the East Hampton Mill Building in the parking lot there, and it's going to be about a five-mile ride. We're going to average about five miles an hour. It's going to be all on pavement, on a little bit on the rail trail, a little bit on the, the roads, and we're going to stop at Mount Tom's, and they're giving us 20% off ice cream. So we're going to have a sweet treat and enjoy some uh, queer community. And all are welcome, allies, queers, any bikes, unicycles, whatever you want to roll, come and have fun. If you want to know more about other All Bodies on Bikes rides, there's uh, allbodiesonbikes.com. You can look up local chapters or events. And then, you know, beyond that, especially in June, you'll see lots of pride rides popping up as well. This is Salem. And so you're here at today at Northampton Bike Breakfast to do what? Uh, officially help with cleanup. <laughs> and just get to hang out and chat with people. <laughs> and you're, what kind of biking do you do? Uh, generally ones with two wheels. Pretty much uh, that's, that's my mode of getting places that I can't walk. And um, I also enjoy riding a bike, so I'll mountain bike. Basically, yeah, I'll ride a bike. <laughs> and aren't you some kind of champion of biking in your, in your career? Uh, I was, past tense. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had a bit of time off from that, but um, I got to win the New England Championships 10 times. And... 10 time winner of the New England Mountain Biking Championships. Yep, well, 11 if you count the junior. <laughs> and now you're a bike advocate. Uh, I think anybody who rides a bike should be a bicycle advocate. I'm not good at shouting, um, but uh, I definitely believe in just kind of being an example of somebody riding a bike. And maybe, uh, yeah, maybe when people are stuck in traffic, they'll, they'll think, hey, there's a better way to do this. So part of my riding now is I have actually one of the, the little fiberglass wands sticking off the side of my bike, which is, it's two feet beyond my shoulder or my hands. Um, so I figure if people are leaving me four feet, they've got two feet of margin beyond the stick that, that they can play with. Within uh, road engineers, there's this 80th percentile rule, which is for conditions and so forth, like both the road and, and, and street and weather conditions, 80% of drivers will operate their vehicle at a safe and reasonable speed. And it seems to coincide nicely with the feedback that I get with the wand, which is four to one, I get positive feedback from people about having, taking up a wider space on the road because it's, it gives them more to see, I'm more visible to them. And, and also says that, you know, they need to be on, be beyond that. And about 
Yeah, one in five people will complain about it. Really, you get complaints about having a, a two-foot wand on your bike? Uh, yeah, I mean, you get complaints about, I mean, you, you don't even need that to get complaints on a bike. Some people are just upset that you're on a bike on their road, so. Karen Foster, you're a Northampton city councilor? Yes, I am. I represent Ward 2, and I'm also the vice president of the city council. Oh, uh, and so you know the mayor? I know the mayor. <laughs> She's wonderful. Um, and what, what do you think about the your local government's approach to complete streets or safe streets or however you think about it? Yeah, you know, I think that it's something that is gaining traction. Improving cycling and pedestrian infrastructure, like all good ideas, is going to take time and funding. Um, and so the city has is nearing completion on a safe routes to school to help children who go to Bridge Street School get to school more safely. Um, the city itself has a budget for traffic calming, um, and that budget increased this year from 25000 to 50000 It's still not enough to meet the resident request and demand, um, but it's something that, that's coming, and I think there's a renewed focus and energy on cycling and pedestrian infrastructure, slowing cars down to make it safer for everybody. Um, and it's, you know, and it's an exciting time and um, we can't do everything all at once, but things are improving. And there's a big redesign of Main Street coming up, right? Yes, the Main Street redesign. Um, and that is going to create more space for people, more space for cyclists and pedestrians. Um, you know, slow. it will slow traffic down coming through Main Street. Um, and I think that's going to really be a big um, draw for people to come visit Main Street, um, you know, that, that it's going to have much wider sidewalks, dedicated bike lane. Uh, I think it's going to be a really exciting change. Do you think that, that Northampton could be one of these places that's known for its, by, you know, its bikeability, like one of those cities like, I don't know, Davis or someplace? Yes, and, and regionally it already is. Um, in addition to be serving on the city council, I'm the executive director of All Out Adventures, and we run outdoor recreation programs for people who have disabilities, and we regularly see people who are coming from a several hour radius um, to access our city's paths. So Jonathan Brody with Northampton Cycling Club, yeah, co-president with Leela Everett from the Northampton Bike Shop. And what are you doing here today? Uh, so being a part of the uh, Northampton area cycling community, um, just connecting with people, uh, including All Out Adventures, which is an adaptive cycling program. We actually just made a $2,000 donation uh, to them to support their programming. Um, that came out of a fundraising uh, ride that we do in the spring called the Masochista, which is a gravel adventure ride uh, up in the hill towns. The Masochista? The Masochista. We find kind of the best roads with the biggest hills, uh, and uh, it's a suffer fest. A suffer fest. <laughs> yes. And what do you normally do? Uh, we have a lot of uh, youth programming and actually youth programming and development right now. We have a cyclocross uh, skills training series for youth riding their bicycles, learning skills and working together uh, as a team. It was, it was really wonderful. In addition to our youth programming, we have weekly rides of varying abilities from beginner to advance. Um, and we also really believe in our community partnerships. So I talked about All Out Adventures. Um, but we're partnering with Friends of Northampton Trails and the goal is to create uh, a central bike closet or depository to be able to have uh, bike uh, loan and actually bike kind of gifting programs for everyone to reduce the barriers to get into cycling. Northampton Cycling Club's mission is to uh, support, promote, uh, and kind of spread uh, the activity and kind of sport of cycling to everybody. 
Northampton is an amazing place to be a cyclist. Um, if you want to ride on the road, the road infrastructure is incredible. We have a high volume of roads, low volume of traffic. But if you want to get into gravel uh, and adventure cycling, let alone mountain biking, uh, it doubles, if not triples, the amount of terrain that's available to you. So year-round great biking, Northampton, and you are the president. Uh, president of Northampton Cycling Club. But what's so great about Northampton is that there's a number of different cycling clubs and cycling groups uh, from, you know, uh, New England Mountain Bike Asso uh, Association to Mass Bike to Friends of Northampton Trails. There's some subgroups and race teams and, you know, including the Jam Fund. You know, this area produced uh, at least three national cyclocross champions, including female uh, cyclocross champion Ellen Noble. Uh, and then, of course, Stephen Hyde and Jeremy Powers. Um, you know, we just live in a very unique place when it comes to cycling. So this is uh, Friends of Northampton Trail hosts this bike breakfast. It brings the different cycling groups uh, from uh, around the Northampton area together uh, to connect with each other, to celebrate one another, uh, and to kind of, you know, continue to give to the community. Yeah, there's donuts. And bagels with cream cheese and coffee, which I've had too much of. <laughs> So that was Northampton, and those are the, the good people there. Just were they so. pancakes there or what? Yeah, what was the breakfast? There were donuts, coffee, muffins. You know, that's what's great about riding your bike, is you can have pancakes and donuts almost every morning. Yeah, it's true. You can eat whatever you want. The benefits never end. Never end. Here's another Bike Month interview from our Washington, D.C. man on the street, Joel Guatz. Okay, this is Joel with Bike Talk making another effort to interview a Washington, D.C. cyclist to talk about bikes during Bike Month. I just ran up to Laura. Laura is locking up her Cannondale road bike. She, I don't know if she went for a ride during lunch or what, but she only has a few minutes because she has to go back to work, but we'll ask her a few questions. Hey, Laura, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing well, thanks. Okay, so how long have you been a cyclist? Actually, not very long. I just got my first bike, which isn't this one, um, in January. And I rode Capital Bikes around for a while before that, so. <laughs> okay, so, well, that's cool. I love to hear the Capital Bike shares a gateway drug for cyclists. Yeah. But so what, what led you to become more of a cyclist? Um, well, my partner introduced me to it kind of as a hobby. I've always been relatively active, um, and I recently was having a knee injury. Um, so cycling was a great way for me to get back outside and, you know, get a little bit of exercise in, but also functionally I commute back and forth around the city. So it was kind of good because otherwise I was driving my car, taking the train, which took longer and parking is also terrible. So biking kind of helped me accomplish two in one. I was getting exercise and I was commuting. It was functional and practical. Um, and then I also now bike, do I do longer rides on the weekends. It's super fun. Okay, so I see you've got a road bike. Is road biking your bike for sport interest? Uh, yes, and this is a bike that I'm borrowing. The bike that I normally ride around is a hybrid. Um, that's what I usually ride around the city, but I am looking into getting into more bike racing. So I'm borrowing this from a friend for a little while to test out the road bike to see if I want to get my own. What kind of racing are you looking to get into? Um, triathlons. Oh, excellent. Yeah. All right. So yeah. I'll probably get something a little bit sleeker than the bike I currently ride, which again, is not this one, but probably something a little bit more similar to this that's a little bit more 
endurance focused that's better for the longer rides and that's a little faster um, the bike i have is not super fast yeah and then of course you'll get the the bars for the extension and the position whatever yeah okay so you know you said you become a commuter and uh, it's hard for you to really make the comparison because you're a new cyclist mm -hmm. But, you know, so we're in D.C., which is considered to be a bike-friendly city, and I think that we do have more separated trails and more yeah. bike lanes than a lot of cities. I think now, that's true. Do you think those are reasons that caused you to become a more cyclist, or was it just a sport thing? Um, I think, like, my primary interest in it is sport, but um, I definitely wouldn't commute on a bike if it weren't for all the protected bike lanes. Because D.C., so I'm not from here originally. I've lived here about four years. I'm from the West Coast. You know, I didn't grow up biking around, but I know biking is dangerous. And in a city like D.C. where there's so many um, angry drivers stuck in traffic, it's not a super safe place for bikers. So having the protected lanes is great. There are several routes for me to get to work from my home in a protected bike lane, and that makes a huge difference. And even then, I still have to be really cautious, but driving on the car with roads is not my favorite. <laughs> Riding on the, on the roads with cars is what I'm going to say. Yeah, it can be scary business out there. Well, I'll let you get back to work. Yeah, cheers. Hope you enjoy getting to know more bikers around. Well, thanks for the show, guys. Absolutely. And remember, if you like the show, you can support us on Patreon. Go to biketalk.org. We can use your support uh, to keep bringing you interviews like next week with Paved Paradise author Henry Gabar. Yeah, definitely support Bike Talk, folks. Send us your ideas. We'll, we'll discuss them live on air. It can be your bike joy. Bike joy. Everybody be safe out there. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around.